The following podcast contains references to mental health issues that some listeners may be very sensitive to. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at RAINNetwork.com. This is part two of a two-part series on mitigating instances of school violence. Part one is currently available for RAIN subscribers or wherever you stream your podcasts. Join Dr. Allison Paulini and Dr. Jean Dysinger as they share their expertise on threat assessment and management as it applies to preventing violence in American schools. Let me delve into the algorithms of social media and um, get your perspectives on the, what I'll refer to is it's not just the fact that everybody has a microphone and can go up on social media and they, obviously they're, they're engaged in discourse with various people and, you know, the reference, you can do things anonymously these days and still have a significant impact. Uh, but there's also a tremendous amount of content that is being pushed out. Uh, that's part of the, the business model behind some, many of the social media platforms. And whether you have a thought about the types of content that are often pushed out, particularly to our, to the younger people, uh, whether it's in terms of videos, whether it's in terms of um, articles and things like that. Yeah. David, I think there's a couple of aspects for that, um, both pull factors and push factors. And so the pull factors within the social media algorithms is that the the revenue model is based on the click-through rate or the and the time on uh, screen, time on task. And so the way to facilitate that is with more content that is exciting, that is lined with the viewer's interest. And what that means is it tends to get more extreme over time. Not necessarily violent. It could go for suicidality, despondency, um, a broader range of sexual interest, etc. But to keep that interest and that click-through, because that's where the revenue stream, that's what can pull people into areas and expose them to things they may not have initially had uh, interest in. Um, And then there's the push factors, where things are being pushed out to people um, by others on, on the site, by the use of algorithms to identify people with, for example, unresolved grievances and maybe struggling with ways uh, to address those or looking for options in those. Uh, We know, for example, that those who have affinity for violent extremist ideological frameworks uh, are actively trolling and using electronic tools to identify vulnerable people and to to then channel content to them. Uh, We know also that foreign nation states are a big part in that. So certainly the companies that develop these programs, that um, develop the algorithms to support their, their revenue components, they have a role, but there's others that are exploiting those capabilities that I think are exponentially increasing the, the risks and the harm that is associated with them. Mm-hmm. Allison, your views. Yes, I I agree. I think Jean said that really beautifully. You know, I think that there's a lot on social media, like I said earlier, we just have to be much more um, 
cautious, I want to say, and we have to be much more, we have to have a, a watchful eye, right? Because we know that a lot of the information that's being posted or shared could be salacious in some way, shape or form. And yeah, it may get people's interest or buy-in, but is it really, is it appropriate, right? And we know that a lot of these students, particularly the ones carrying out acts of violence, that there is a preoccupation, I want to say, um, with violence, right? So most of these perpetrators, the majority of them demonstrate some sort of interest, right? They're, um, it's, it's almost like, like a fixation or an obsession, right? With violence in videos or movies or other types of media. Um, and so again, I think just being, having that awareness, right? And having the social media companies need to really, I think, refocus the priorities, right? We have to start prioritizing safety and wellness over money and fiscal success, right? Um, what was really interesting I found is that there was a study that came out of the University of Michigan the Youth Violence Center, and they found that social media is not only, so it's not only with the kids in schools, but also for gang members, just sort of society at large, where they're posting fight compilations, right? So it's recorded videos and snippets of these videos, parts of a fight, and which are being uploaded to social media, and tens of thousands, millions of people are watching and, and again, it's, you know, what does that really say about society at large that there's such an interest in, in watching people assault each other and, and you know, get hurt? Um, and so I think that that also needs to be assessed. Like what is causing the uptick of interest in having this exposure to media violence? Because we know that the more people are exposed to it, the more not only does it normalize it, but the more likely that they themselves, right, will be um, likely to engage in whether it's antisocial or this volatile behavior. So I think those are also things that need to be considered. Okay, I'm not going to delve into the Surgeon General's uh, report from just about, <laughs> I don't know, 10 months or so ago as well. Let me quickly switch gears because there was an important development, I think, in, in the last, um, last week. Um, a, what I'll refer to as a new front in, in what I'll refer to as the broader effort to try to get our, our hands around these challenges. And uh, Michigan jury, I'm, I'm referencing the Crumley case, but you know, for the first time um, in U.S criminal law, um, parents were charged in a mass school shooting committed by their child. And I don't want to get into the um, so much of the details. Uh, one thing I will note, Allison, at least as testified to, uh, apparently some issues were brought to the attention of the school. The school did not believe um, that the son was at risk. I, I want to put that aside. But I'd love to get your perspective on what essentially now is uh, basically, um, we'll see where, where it goes on appeal, of course, but the notion of criminal responsibility um, on behalf of the parents for these types of events. Well, like you, David, I'll be interested to see where that one goes. I, uh, 
uh, I, I was a little surprised by the outcome of the the case. Uh, not that I didn't think that there were uh, there was some negligence, uh, at least as publicly reported on the behavior of the the parents. So I'll put that caveat there. Um, but it is an interesting extension uh, of the law. I, I certainly, it's not unusual that parents are, are uh, have a role of culpability in their children's actions. That's occurred in other arenas as well. This is probably the more extreme example of it. Uh, I think if it's sustained on uh, appeal, it will highlight an acknowledgement that there are contributory causes here and that others of us have a role in these, uh, in these uh, cases and in the development of uh, risk. Uh, I do think that we need to be careful about that because there are things that are abundantly more clearly understood in retrospect than they are in real time. Um, I've had opportunity to interview parents of uh, persons, uh, both at, who as children and uh, as adults engaged in violent acts who are stupefied by the actions of their offspring. Um, uh, different circumstances didn't have opportunity perhaps to be in what appears to be as contributory of a role in terms of access to a firearm, which I think was a compelling uh, factor in that case If I, from what I'm reading in there. Um, so I, I do urge some caution around that, but uh, I think we should look critically at what were the contributing uh, factors in there. And I think the after action report shows some significant deficits in the school's response, but uh, issues of immunity from liability uh, prohibited uh, further action there, if I recall correctly. That's correct, Gene. Yeah. Allison, any initial perspectives on the case? Yes, thank you for asking. I think that's a great question. Um, I actually fully supported the outcome. I think that this is reflective of, and I think Jean made, again, you know, really, really spot on um, the commentary, but I think there's a lot of parents, um, particularly with this student, and I know what Jean was saying about mental illness versus overall mental wellness, and I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, in this case, I think that this kid, Ethan Crumbly, did struggle with serious underlying mental health issues um, that was ongoing. This was not like stints in time. Um, clearly, he was struggling with some sort of mental health disorder. He was a very, he's a very troubled boy. And I think the parents in this case were in complete denial that their kid was struggling. Maybe they were embarrassed or that they felt that, that there was some sort of stigma associated with it or that it would reflect poorly on their parenting, and so they clearly didn't get him the help that he desperately needed, which is a form of neglect, absolutely. And, you know, I think schools kind of have their hand tied because really much more follow-through needs to be done by the parents. Yes, they can make a mandated report and they should about abuse, but in terms of, you know, they can't mandate or require the parents to get their child help, even if they continuously recommend it. Um, I think the other issue with this case is that the parents really facilitated and enabled the shooting to happen, right? Because they purchased the gun for him, knowing that he had a fixation, knowing that he had clear underlying issues and probably should not have access to a firearm. Um, you know, he was making drawings of guns, people lying in blood, really gruesome, 
worrisome drawings, did not have a strong support system, you know, clearly was very isolated and ostracized. And then the father goes out and buys a semi-automatic handgun on Black Friday, right? So um, that was somewhat counterintuitive. And when the school called the parents in to have a meeting and asked them to take him home because clearly what he was doing was very alarming, the parents refused. And then the same day, he carries out the massacre. Um, so again, you know, in this instance, I do think that the parents should be liable. There's definitely an accountability there. They definitely failed him. They failed the children who were murdered. And I think if kids are struggling, you know, parents need to recognize that getting them help is a gift. It's a sign of strength. Um, and so that was my takeaway with that case. Uh, obviously, it will go up on appeal. I will mention, and both of you have alluded to it, and I know Gene has been very focused. Um, unfortunately, within our network, and um, Dr. Michael Lesser has worked with many people, there are parents and significant others who are clearly recognizing the mental health challenges um, that their loved ones are going through. Uh, but are unable to get them the help they need. There are many stories where um, finding a professional um, has been a very, very difficult challenge. Um, availability, availability at facilities, availability at hospitals, availability for diagnoses purposes, and uh, that remains a challenge. Gene, you'll will remember, um, I believe this was a state senator from Virginia uh, ended up on 60 Minutes, but, uh, you know, whose son was was struggling and he was working very hard to have his son uh, seen by physicians and in fact admitted, believed his son was at risk. And, um, you know, very, very tragically, uh, he was with his son. I think it, they said it was going to be another few days or a week. I can't remember what it was, but you know, his son had an episode and took his own life. Um, and so the continued shortage of support resources um, here, I know, is something both of you have focused on. Uh, in closing, I wanted to see if I could just give you guys the floor. You counsel, you advise organizations uh, in all sectors uh, about what, they, what their program should look like. For, I won't say for um, obviating this, this risk, but for mitigating for detection, identification, response, and you know, remediation. And maybe you can um, just share in the closing minutes sort of the, I'll call it a checklist of um, advice and resources that you have very valuably uh, provided to your respective um, clients and, and affiliated entities. And Gene, maybe I'll start with you and Allison give you the closing minutes. Well, of course, my uh, area is behavioral threat assessment and management and a, a field that has grown tremendously in the last uh, 35, 40 years or so. Uh, as it's been systematized, the, the good news is there are a lot of resources that are available um, whether it's schools or campuses or workplaces, healthcare facilities, government agencies, et cetera. 
Um, so within schools, uh, Allison's purview, the, the Secret Service has issued a, a variety of guides to facilitate implementation of multidisciplinary problem-solving teams for that early identification of developing concerns uh, and problem-solving uh, around that. Again, mental, uh, mental health issues being one part of that, but not the only uh, part uh, in it. Um, I think it's important that those consider all potential uh, threats, and they're fundamentally dependent on engagement with the communities they serve. Uh, research by both the FBI and the Secret Service has shown that one of the more significant factors that differentiates completed acts of targeted violence versus averted acts is whether bystanders came forward with their concerns. And if they do, we have a remarkable ability to uh, prevent and mitigate harm. And when they don't, of course, not surprisingly, uh, it's very difficult to do so. Um, whether it's a school, whether it's a campus or a business, you need to be drawing on the, the science and the standards of practice in their approaches to assessment and management and mitigation of concerns. There's too many things that are just really based on antiquated perspectives and understanding about violence and trying to look at single issues as if they explain all the variants in it. Um, and we know better than that. And there's lots of models. Uh, Homeland Security within the United States has pr been providing more training and more resources. The FBI does regularly, Secret Service. Many states, I think there's nearly 20 states now that have statutory requirements for threat assessment and management processes within schools or campuses. Uh, so we've seen that growing out, but I think it's important if we're gonna do it, that uh, we do it well. And you know that's secondary and tertiary prevention, and Allison and her colleagues work in both in the primary prevention area as well, which is not the space that I primarily work in. But I think it's critical to emphasize uh, those as well. So I'll defer to her on those. So Gene, the take the takeaway is there are resources out there now that people can take advantage of, and there has to be community ownership here, uh, and uh, where people are expected if they see something, there's not to be cliched about this, but to say something. And th there has to be a mechanism whereby people can raise their hands and uh, bring certain concerns to the attention of the appropriate parties. And I would add to the, uh, to see something, say something, and then do something within their capabilities right. uh, to support the safety and well-being of whatever that environment, whatever that community is. It's not just about reporting, it's being an active part of building the safety and well-being of the organization, again, whether it's a school, campus, or workplace. That's a great point. Thank you, Gene. Allison. Yeah, these were really, really great points. So just to reiterate what I had said before, and yes, there are many really impactful resources um, that school counselors and critical stakeholders, I think, across the board can, can utilize and refer to. Um, but it really goes back to, like we talked about, creating that safe school space, right? And that really does help to promote the engagement and the connectivity. And holistically, I think you're going to be, ha you're going to have happier, healthier, more well-adjusted, you know, students. Um, definitely having the anti-bullying programs, that is essential. All grade levels, K to 12, whether it's the always anti-bullying program, um, or steps to respect, those are both evidence-based. I actually used steps to respect when I was a school counselor 
it was manualized. I had to change some verbiage to make it a bit more age appropriate. Um, but it was a really, really wonderful program. I went into the classes bi-weekly and I alternated between talking about bullying and character education. Um, and so that was so important for the, for the elementary school age students. And I think just sort of going back to what you just said about see something, say something, in regard to the bullying, I think it's going to be so important to teach students to be upstanders rather than bystanders. So bystanders sort of look by and watch and maybe film what's going on, um, which ultimately just continues to exacerbate the issue. Whereas an upstander will assert themselves and you know confidently speak up for the person being attacked. And I think that's really important to know that, especially those kids who are being bullied, for them to have a sense of support and that camaraderie, I think is important. Um, doing the threat assessment, that's probably one of the best resources that schools have prevention-wise, right? Just in terms of identifying um, who these students are and, and the degree to which they pose a threat to themselves or others. Collaboration, right? Co and contracting out with the mental health agencies is key just because they have such a high caseload school counselors and they're limited, they're sort of restricted because they are, they're not able to make those diagnoses. And so the mental health counselors can perhaps contract in and work with those students who need more support. I think the other important thing about collaboration is that um, since school counselors have such a high caseload, they're not able to know which students are struggling and who is not. And so that's, I think, where the collaboration with the administrators and with the teachers, because they're working with the students more um, closely, right, on, on a day-to-day -day basis. And so they would be able to recognize and identify students who may be changing affect-wise or physically or their grades are dropping or whatever the case may be. If there's anything alarming, then they could refer that student to the school counselor, which I think is essential. Um, integrating the social-emotional learning, right? We know the importance of this, these life skills, um, having students work in small groups, teaching them about self-awareness and self-management and relationship building and responsible decision-making and helping them cope, teaching them coping skills, right? So we all go through adversity and I think it's really important that we start teaching students how to embrace those hard times, persevere through them and really demonstrate resilience, right? Because that's a reflection of one's character and one's integrity, which is so essential. You know, counselors need to continue facilitating responsive services, their individual, their small group, their crisis, their classroom counseling, breaking down codes of silence. So going back to see something, say something, a lot of students may fear saying something even if they have information because they don't wanna be retaliated against, right? So giving them a discreet way to share knowledge, to share information, whether it's through Google Forms or another medium, it could be anonymous or not, having some sort of worry box, but some way where students um, feel empowered, right? And they feel safe sharing whatever information they have, doing mental health screenings. Um, even though school counselors can't diagnose, they can certainly screen to see if a student may be struggling. And just going back to the social media, continuing the monitoring, whether it's school counselors partnering with social media companies, 
um, or different types of companies that are able to monitor, you know, types of posts being made, when they're being made, where they're being made from, and encouraging family involvement. Right, we know the importance of family involvement and parent involvement and research has shown time and time again, the more families are involved, the more successful the student. So breaking down those barriers and doing more to promote involvement from all critical stakeholders, I think will be instrumental for overall student success. I wanna thank you both for uh, being overly generous with your time and um, hopefully this can be a continued uh, conversation. Um, I, I will mention um, that, you know, within our network, uh, people are constantly asking, what can we do? What can we do as parents? What can we do in our workplaces? What can we do in leading academic institutions? So this has been a very, very helpful conversation. Hopefully, um, consider it you know, the beginning and not the end, and we can continue this um, in the near future. So, Allison, thank you so, so much. Jean, thank you again. And I'd like to just sort of recognize that uh, this is truly a public service, what you, what you guys are doing um, day to day. And again, thanks for being so generous with your time today. Always a pleasure, David. Thanks so much. And Allison, great to collaborate with you on this. Oh, you too, Gene. Yes, thank you, David. This has been such an awesome opportunity. I have had a blast. Thank you both. Really, this has been just wonderful. And, and just, just to add a little bit of uh, irony to it, um, just while we were doing this on my uh, computer, it came up that there was a, apparently a shooting in Kansas City, Gene. Uh, from, yes, I saw. Around the, oh, uh, at the Chiefs? Yeah, I saw that Chiefs too. Thing. I had an yeah, alert. Yeah, oh yeah. God. Just in case we needed any more reminders. Anyway, thank <laughs> yeah. you both and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. This is the Rain Insights podcast, which is part of the Rain Insights series, comprised of both virtual and real world events, offering unique practical perspectives from Rain's leading experts in risk management. To learn more, please visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. Thanks for listening.